Hello, and welcome to Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 17. Walt Disney had been largely unaffected by the economic depression that slowly descended after the stock market crash in October 1929 and then squeezed the nation, a de- squeezed the nation, a depression that put a quarter of the workforce on the street and caused untold pain. Though one might have thought of a Though one might have thought of movie theaters as refuges from the suffering, the film industry was hardly immune to the downturn. The Disneys, however, were. While other studios saw their revenues dip precipitously, not so much because audiences declined, though they did as because the studios had overextended themselves in a wild theater-buying spree in the 1920s and the value of the property collapsed, the Disneys, without theaters or personal investments beyond the shares they owned in one of Uncle Robert's get-rich-quick oil schemes and some plots of real estate, sailed along unscathed by the national trauma. Though they suffered financial wounds, most of them were self-inflicted, the result of Walt's unwillingness to compromise the quality of his films. Rather than cutting costs, he kept increasing them. Even usually reserved Roy felt that he and Walt had somehow cheated the Depression by constantly reinvesting in their own studio rather than investing in the stock market. Anything that we had saved up was all put into our business, he wrote his parents in in 1932. We have been doing our own gambling. This past three years will be a very good lesson to the people at large, meaning apparently that others would have to learn to invest in themselves as well. But if the Depression did not affect Walt economically, it was in many ways replicated in his own emotional depression. Just as the nation could not escape the economic buffets, Walt could not secure his fantasy world against the assaults of the real world, could not, in fact, make it perfect enough or impregnable enough which led to his breakdown. His first plan, when his doctor told him he had to leave the studio, was to take an ocean trip to Seattle and then visit his parents in Portland and Lillian's relatives in Idaho. His second plan was to sail to Hawaii, and he booked passage for himself and Lillian on a cruise ship. In the event, though, he and Lillian acted impulsively, canceling the Hawaii trip and booking passage on a boat from Havana through the Panama through the Panama Canal, then picking up traveler's checks and hopping a train to St. Louis, where they hoped to catch a riverboat down the Mississippi River, just as Walt and his old friend Russell Moss had intended to do when Walt returned from France in 1919. From their disembarkation point, Disembarkation point, they planned to get to Key West and rendezvous with the boat to Cuba. As it turned out, there were no longer riverboats on the Mississippi, only barges, so the couple improvised again, taking a train to Washington, D.C., staying three days at the Mayflower Hotel, visiting the monuments and strolling aimlessly through the parks, or just sitting on the benches feeding the pigeons. Then they trained to Key West and caught their tug to Havana, where they spent the next week lounging at the Hotel National and taking taking excursions to the countryside before heading home via the canal as planned. Their two New York visits having ended in disaster, it was their first real vacation in six years of marriage. Walt said that he and Lillian had the time of our life because he had reached the point where I didn't give a darn. He felt he had been liberated from the burden of his own, perfe- of her, of his own perfectionism. He returned to the studio looking, according to George Morris, very much rested, but he was, he told Maris, still nervous and sure would like to get away for a couple of weeks more. Instead, he dove into a new regimen outside the studio. 
The breakdown, he said, woke me up to the fact that life is sweet and work is not everything. So he took up sports, for which he had never had time even as a child, ice skating, swimming, horseback riding, and boxing. He even joined the Hollywood Athletic Club and wrestled there two or three times a week, though he admitted he didn't like having to get down there in somebody's crotch and sweaty old sweatshirt. For a while, he took up golf, rising at four each morning so he could be on the course by 5.30 without intruding on studio time, playing five holes, then eating a hearty breakfast and heading for the studio, as he put it, full of pep. Lillian accompanied him in many of these pursuits, swimming at the club, horseback riding in Griffith Park, and even rising to join him for his early golf sessions, which were usually truncated. Walt would fly into such a... Into, into such a rage when he missed a stroke, Lillian said, that I got helplessly hysterical watching him. Walt claimed all this activity relaxed him now, made him better able to focus and cope. But despite his tributes to his new exercise regimen and his professions that he had returned to the studio and new man, he was still restless and discontented. He had been back at the studio only a few weeks when he and Lillian left again, this time for a trip to Kansas City, where Walt received an award from Demole and addressed their convention, and on to New York for the first time as a tourist rather than as a petitioner. Walt is feeling much better than he was before his vacation, Roy wrote Elias and Flora shortly after Walt's return, but is not back to his old self. Confidentially, I'm a little worried about Walt's health, feeling there must be something basically wrong. Walt was still tired and mopey. He continued visiting doctors in hopes of discovering what ailed him, and one found what he thought was an intestinal parasite that seemed to be sapping the patient's strength. Roy was consoled by the fact that Walt was finally tending to himself after years of tending only to the studio, where, Roy now thought, things were going well enough that it is much less of a nerve-wracking job for him than before. Roy was correct that some of the financial pressure had abated. In January 1932, he concluded a revised agreement with United Artists, adding five new silly symphonies to the contract and an, at an advance of $15,000 each and a 30% distribution fee. More important, Roy negotiated a loan of $195,000 to be used as Walt saw fit. Roy called it our first good contract. The only hitch was that the studio had fallen behind in its delivery of Mickey Mouse cartoons, and in order to catch up, it had to divert the animators from the symphonies for six months. All of this should have made Walt happy, but if he was no longer besieged by financial difficulties, he was still in the grip of his own obsession with excellence, which made him compulsively dissatisfied, and he now had a new burden, the burden of expectations. Everyone seemed to recognize that Disney not only consistently produced the best animations, but had begun to reinvent animation. He was transforming it from a crude juvenile novelty to something that approached a naive art. Indeed, this was the new Disney enterprise, a revolution really, to do whatever it took to elevate animation to an art form. Practically every tool we use today was originated at the Disney studio, Chuck Jones, a celebrated Warner Brothers animator and producer would later observe, and he compared Disney to the great live-action director D.W. Griffith, who was similarly extolled for having brought art to the silent film. Disney's own animators appreciated that they were pioneers. Les Clark claimed that animation developed because of Walt's insistence and supervision, and animators Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston wrote that the exhilaration of breaking through barriers to new frontiers was more than any of us could resist. 
But the most striking difference between the animations of Walt Disney and those of his forebears and competitors was, as always, less a matter of innovation than aspiration. The old Disney demand that one strive for the very best. Walt would not, repeat, would not okay any animation that did not meet with his very high standard of acceptance, one Disney employee wrote. In practice, this meant that everything one did had to be analyzed, endlessly analyzed to make sure it worked, to make sure that it was up to standard, to make sure that it could not be improved upon. As animator Dick Humor put it, everyone at the studio found themselves analyzing and reanalyzing, reanalyzing, discarding, and starting all over again, which was so contrary to the routine at rival animation studios where, as another animator put it, you are paid to bat out 30 or 35 feet a week, some good, some bad, but the only important thing was that the footage got done. The emphasis on analysis necessarily led to the development of new techniques that would facilitate it and that would soon become standard operating procedure in animation. Early on, animators at the Disney studio would make what they called pencil tests for their own use, shooting their rough drawings on inexpensive negative film so that they could see the outcome before finalizing the animation. By one account, Tom Palmer, probably early in 1931, had shot a short pencil test and was feeding the film through the, mo through the moviola, a device with a small screen that enabled one to view the footage, when Walt happened by and asked what Palmer was doing. Impressed by the value of previewing the rough animation, he instituted it as a policy in the studio. In short order, Walt installed a moviola in a cramped, stifling windowless closet that was soon dubbed the sweat box. Hunched over the tiny screen, no more than four inches by four inches, Walt and the animator would view and analyze the action by the hour over and over and over again, trying to determine what would make it right, make it funnier. I think it is astounding that we were the first group of animators, so far as I can learn, who ever had the chance to study their own work and correct its errors before it reached the screen, Walt would say a few years later. In our little studio on Hyperion Street, every foot of rough animation was projected on the screen for analysis, and every foot was drawn and redrawn until we could say this is the best that we can do. Eventually, Wilfred Jackson began stringing the pencil tests together, along with still drawings for the scenes not yet animated, into longer sequences that he called Leica reels after the Leica camera that was used to shoot them, so that the animators could see scenes in relation to one another. Walt encouraged them to add sound as well. In effect, then, Walt and the four or five animators who could squeeze into the sweat box with him could preview the entire cartoon before the drawings were cleaned up and inked and painted on cells. This strengthening of his control seemed to energize Walt. He loved to pour over the Leica reels, but even then the process wasn't foolproof. After a cartoon was finished and previewed, Walt often ordered the staff back into the sweat box for improvements. For improvements. The effect of the pencil tests and Leica reels was not only to upgrade the quality of Disney cartoons, they altered the very nature of animation. Before the inauguration of pencil tests, animators focused on making clean drawings and tight in-betweens that would require little revision. The result, however, was a certain inflexibility and rigidity. Old animation was done from pose to pose without much thought, said Dick Humor. It was almost like it was a flat design, without any weight. 
In those cartoons, a character would come to a complete stop and there he'd freeze, and his eyes would blink, or his hair would stand up, or whatever. If his head did turn, the rest of him would be stuck there stiffly. As Walt said of this sort of animation, your character goes dead and it looks like a drawing. Ub Iwerks had had a basic command of animation techniques, and he could draw actions, but he could never give his characters a sense of mass or fluidity of movement. Still, Iwerks had been the exemplar at the studio, and Walt himself admitted the hardest job was to get the guys to quit, draw to quit fooling around with these individual drawings and to think of the group of drawings in an action. With Iwerks no longer the guiding light, and with the pencil tests to aid them, the animators were liberated to experiment, and they did. When Norm Ferguson animated Frolicking Fish in 1930, Walt commanded the other animators to study it because Ferguson had made certain that there was a constant flow of action. Soon, everybody started drawing looser, another animator recalled. This opened up more freedom of movement. Already by 1931, characters in Disney cartoons no longer shunted from pose to pose. They moved smoothly between them, creating what came to be called overlapping animation, in which action flowed. Overlapping action was an invention of Disney's, Dick Humor said. That's why Disney's animation looked so different. Disney's animations were narratively different, too. All cartoons were predicted on the gag, a, vi a visual joke or a brief comic situation. The gag was holy and inviolate, the reason for the cartoon's existence, and most animation studios simply linked gags willy-nilly. Walt would send an outline to the staff and then ask them to gag it. So let's all hop to it and have some good belly laughs ready by Tuesday night, went a typical request. Walt would then award prizes for the gags he used. One or two dollars, occasionally as much as three dollars and fifty cents in the early thirties, though the rate was soon standardized at two dollars and fifty cents. At Disney, too, the gag was the fundamental narrative component. It was the basis on which cartoons succeeded or failed. You must sharpen your ability to get right at the basis of the gag without mistaking the trimming for the meat of the action, Walt once instructed Dick Humor, while warning another employee that he seemed to lack an understanding of the proper portrayal of gags. At other studios, where animators would either select or be assigned a basic situation, and then animate as they desired, whether one animator's gag really connected to another's or not was irrelevant. Good gags were everything. Disney's gags may not have been any better than those of his rivals, but, as animators Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston put it, they were staged better with more care taken to establish the situation. There was more concern for detail, for building comedy, for making the gag pay off. Our mistake was that we weren't establishing anything first, Dick Humor observed of his pre-Disney days animating gags. We were giving the payoff without the build-up. Disney always very carefully planned things so that everything was understandable and one thing happened after another logically. One animation historian cited the difference between the very early Disney cartoons and the cartoons of 1931 as a matter of density. In the later cartoons, each individual gag was more complicated, and the gags accumulated, each gag building on the one that preceded it. Yet, even while he was analyzing and then refining the gag, Walt was also changing the basic narrative unit of his cartoons. He had begun to think not just in terms of gags, but in terms of a story to which the gags would be subordinated, which may have been as revolutionary an advance in animation as his overlapping action. 
Indeed, Story was the very thing Walt himself had disdained while working for Mintz. When he hired Ted Sears in 1930, the old flesher animator who one colleague said wore a high collar, plastered his hair on his head, spoke out of the side of his mouth, and looked like a defrocked priest, Walt had appointed him head of a new story department, some department sto something unheard of at any other animation studio. It consisted of Bill Cottrell, the ink and paint man turned camera operator turned animator, Webb Smith, a former newspaperman, and Pinto Kolvig, who would later become the voice of the character Goofy. These men were initially charged with helping devise better gags without the responsibility of having to animate them. Walt would toss them a situation, say Mickey's pet dog Pluto getting stuck on flypaper, and then let them develop it. I came back in two days, Walt recalled, of having given Webb Smith that instruction, and there was a whole wall full of things that would happen to that dog if he got mixed up with flypaper, see? So then the process would be of sitting down with that, taking some of those ideas, copying them if we could, putting them into some kind of routine and continuity. It was the continuity on which the storyman, with Walt's blessing, now began to concentrate. Walt wanted the story and gags to be as polished as the animation itself. To elevate the status of the story, Walt, rather than have the gag men move from animator to animator with their ideas, installed them in their own room, where the entire staff would congregate at a cartoon's launch to discuss the storyline and gags, and where directors would later repair to flesh out the stories and convert them to visuals. Meanwhile, one of the storymen, some sources credit Webb Smith, others Ted Sears, came up with the idea of laying out the entire cartoon scene by scene in a series of rough sketches, the plot equivalent of the pencil tests, and pinning them on a large 4 by 8 foot corkboard, a storyboard it was called, that permitted the storymen, the animators, and Walt to get an overview of the narrative flow of the film. And there's a star there, so I've got to read the note at the end of the page. According to animator Seamus Culhane, Sears had actually devised the storyboard in May 1930 for the Fleshers, just before leaving as an expedient to help young animators get a better sense of sequence, since most of the Fleshers' better animators had decamped to the West Coast and Disney. Now, Walt could study the cartoon even before it had been put into pencil tests. As one animator said, you get the feeling that every last frame of that thing has been worked over until it's perfect. Whenever one element changed, it set off a chain reaction. The new regard for story demanded a new approach to the animated figures. So long as cartoons simply linked slapstick gags, characters were little more than foils. Even the early Mickey Mouse was a device that accommodated the comic situation. Leering when the circumstances demanded leering, fearful when they demanded fear, swashbuckling when they demanded courage, merry when they required merriment. But the more elaborated stories that Sears's department began turning out at Walt's behest required more elaborated characters as well, actors rather than inactors. The big reason nobody remembers what happened in the early days was that there was no real story and no personality, one animator observed. That's why everybody thinks that Walt Disney invented the cartoon. A character like Felix the Cat, Walt once told Frank Thomas, had little bits of personality here and there, and Walt himself had attempted to forge a personality for Oswald the Rabbit and later Mickey Mouse, but he felt that these bits were not sufficient. 
Walt, who was always trying to nudge animation closer to the live-action films of Chaplin or Keaton, understood that the audience needed involvement. They needed to care about the characters on the screen, not just to laugh at them, and he began stressing to his animators the importance of creating characters who could elicit emotional reactions from the, reviewer, from the viewers. It was the uppermost thing Wilfred Jackson remembered of this period, and it all came about because Walt wanted to make the cartoon characters believable to the audience. Right from the start, he didn't want them to be just something moving around on the screen and doing funny things. Your characters had to be the kind of characters that people could relate to, Eric Larson concurred. As Walt himself later put it in a succinct formulation of his aesthetic, the most important aim of any of the fine arts is to get a purely emotional response from the beholder. The only way to elicit that response, Walt believed, was through personality, a set of characteristics that were unique to the character and that coalesced to define him. At the Disney studio, the edict came down from Walt that animated figures were no longer to be simply functional for the gag. They had to be full-bodied, or as one animator described it, believable in motion and emotion. Aside from the general aspiration to excellence, of all the numerous contributions and innovations that Walt Disney bequeathed to animation, this may very well have been the single most important, because it was the one that changed animation most radically, not just in its physical appearance or in its narrative amplitude, but in its fundamental relationship to the viewer, and it was the one that most distinguished Disney animation from its forebears. All characters had to be treated as if they were not merely animated, but living, an approach that came to be called personality animation. Everything in his cartoons had to have a personality, animator Ward Kimball said. He insisted that if a tree was bashful, it had to act like it was bashful. If it was a villainous tree, it had to behave like a villain. He always demanded complete character delineation from his animators. At one story session, Walt asked, how would a piano feel if Mickey bangs on it too hard? For Walt, personality was not a function of physical behavior or even of the emotional responses that one could slap upon a character. The magic of animation, the magic of Disney animation, was that personality seemed to emerge from the drawings as if it had been internalized. You have to portray not only that this thing is moving, Walt once said, but it is actually alive and thinks. The idea of a thinking, feeling cartoon character, a character with psychology and emotional range, was a revelation, even at the Disney studio, where just a few years before there was concern over whether an audience would accept a voice emanating from a drawing. When Norm Ferguson animated Webb Smith's sequence of Pluto struggling with the flypaper in Playful Pluto in 1934, the effect on the studio was electric, the one big one Wilfred Jackson called it. It was a blockbuster because you could see the wheels going round in the character's head, Ward Kimball recalled, and we were just more or less pulling out of that bouncing, dancing, musical age of Disney shorts, where all of our characters with big smiles on their faces kept time to the music or played an instrument. Here comes a character that gets stuck with a situation and keeps building, almost like a Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd or a, Ch or a Chaplin sequence. Ferguson, whose animation had already won Walt's admiration for its fluidity, now won further now won further admiration for its psychology and depth. Fergie, you're a great actor, Walt announced in front of the staff one day, and when Ferguson simpered and shrank in embarrassment, Walt insisted, yes, you are, that's why your animation is so good, because you feel, you feel what these characters feel.
Walt Disney would be credited and often criticized as well for bringing greater realism to animation, and he almost single-handedly broke the long-standing tradition to which he himself had once subscribed of self-reflexive cartoons in which one saw the animator's hand in favor of a new aesthetic in which the cartoon world was presented as self-contained. But the visual realism he encouraged was actually a product of the psychological and emotional realism he demanded, not a source. Walt wanted a credible visual field for his more credible animated characters in order to forge that emotional bond with the audience, an animated universe he called the plausible impossible that stretched natural laws without breaking them entirely. As a result of this new imperative and of the analysis of scenes through pencil tests, Disney animators began to abandon the prevailing tried-and-true style of animation, disparagingly named Rubber Hose, which forsook realism and its difficulties for ease of drawing. In Rubber Hose animation, when the shape of a figure or an object changed, so would its volume as if it were made of rubber. There was no consideration of gravity or weight. This bothered Walt. He felt that the lack of realism compromised the psychological and emotional reality of the characters and snapped the emotional bond to the viewer. To the viewer. As Walt began to bear down a little bit on making his characters believable, Jackson said, all this rubber hose had to go. Now gravity entered the cartoon world for the first time, and so did secondary actions, or the response of things like hair and clothes and leaves to gravity. Prior to Disney, Dick Humor recalled, no one thought of clothing following through, sweeping out and dropping a few frames later, which is what it does naturally. At the Disney studio, everyone began to think of these things and the force of gravity became an obsession. Among the many signs that hung on the animator's walls was one that read, Does your drawing have weight, depth, and balance? Sometimes, however, the animators simply were not good enough. To meet the new standards for realism, they knew they had to improve their skills. I definitely feel that we cannot do the fantastic things based on the real unless we first know the real, Walt had advised. They needed training. As early as 1929, Walt would drive several of his animators to downtown Los Angeles to attend Friday night classes at the Chouinard Art Institute, then go to the studio to work, and then return to pick them up. Sometime in 1931, he contracted with Chouinard to train a dozen or so of his artists one night a week. One of them, Art Babbitt, decided that it would be more efficient for the artists to gather at his house near the Hollywood Bowl for informal drawing sessions with live models, and in the late summer or early fall of 1932, he began hosting these get-togethers. The first week, he invited eight artists and 14 arrived. The next week, he invited the 14 and 22 appeared. Several weeks later, Walt called Babbitt to his office. Suppose it got in the newspapers that a bunch of Disney artists were drawing naked women in a private home, he said, it wouldn't sit very well. Instead, obviously hoping to attract even more of the staff, he offered them the studio soundstage and free materials. After Walt's proposal, another young animator who had been attending the sessions at Babbitt's house, Hardy Gramatke, suggested they formalize the instruction by inviting the man who had conducted the Chouinard classes, Donald Graham, to serve as the teacher. Babbitt contacted Graham, and on November 15th, the Great Disney Art School, as Graham called it, held its first class. 
At first, the group met on the soundstage just two evenings a week with 20 to 30 men in attendance. Within a month, the numbers had swelled, compelling Graham to call in another instructor, Phil Dyke, and divide the class in two. Over the next two years, weekly attendance averaged better than 50 per session, and Graham occasionally had to enlist a third instructor, a third instructor to accommodate the group. Soon, they were meeting five nights a week, and though attendance initially was not mandatory, as Babbitt put it, you'd better go. Canadian born and trained at Stanford as an engineer before taking instruction himself at Chouinard and, a com and committing to art, Graham was only 29 when he took the helm. A handsome, compact man with dark, wavy hair, a square jaw, deep-set eyes, ropey arms, and the long fingers of an artist. He stood at the front of the cavernous room holding a lit cigarette that he kept passing from hand to hand as he talked, riveting the class as the ash edged closer to those fingers. The task that he set for himself was, in one student's words, necessarily impossible. He had no training in animation itself, but it wasn't animation that Walt wanted him to teach. Rather, he taught a group of crusty New York animators, former newspaper cartoonists, sometime art students, and talented dabblers the art of figurative drawing without, said one animator, imposing a single style on them. He was laying a foundation, teaching them how to draw, really draw, which meant as one animator came to realize that he was single-handedly attacking the traditional concept of animation as simply moving comic strips and trading it for realism. It was Graham who now painted painstakingly showed them the effect of gravity on mass and how flesh and muscle move and the role of secondary effects. Art Babbitt said that Graham was the one who taught him to analyze and taught him as well that only the slightest little offbeat element in a person's movement makes him a distinctly different character. Another animator, Seamus Culhane, went so far as to say that after Walt Disney himself, Don Graham had the greatest impact on the philosophy of the medium by trying to create a group of sophisticated filmmakers educated in the theories of the old masters, modern art, acting, and the scientific principles of movement. At a studio dedicated to excellence, Graham became a kind of hero for prodding the animators toward fine art. As the students drew and Graham wandered among them, gazing over their shoulders at their pads, he had only two assessments. Either he asked having problems, or he said, looks like you're having fun. The second, according to one animator, was the supreme apotheme, the supreme tribute, the ne plus ultra, because having fun meant that something was sinking in, the lessons were bearing fruit. I would rather hear Don Graham say having fun, the animator said, than win an Academy Award. In due course, Graham would be added to the studio payroll full-time, teaching three days and two nights each week, while the studio school expanded to five nights a week with 150 students at a cost. It was estimated of $100,000 a year. Meanwhile, Walt complimented Graham's instruction by commissioning slow-motion photographic studies, he said, of glass breaking, bubbles forming and popping, water drops falling into a tub, even smoke swirling, for the animators to analyze by instituting a studio library that eventually grew to 2,000 volumes where a staff of three provided drawings and photographs for the animators. By having photostats of human movement sized to fit the animation board so that the animators could draw over the photos and discover for themselves the basis of action, even by having certain animators attend acting classes. 
Animators at other studios would grouse that they had been given the time Disney animators had. They could have produced work just as good, but the mentality was the difference, not the time. William Titla, who had worked for Paul Terry in New York before joining the Disney studio, said that when he suggested Terry hire a model to help them improve their technique, he was told to get one himself and that Terry dismissed the idea of hiring an instructor like Graham. Finally, Titla abandoned the effort, complaining, they said anyone who goes to art school is a homo Bolshevik. Seamus Culhane had a similar experience at the Flesher studio. They could never accept the fact that time wasn't the factor. It was education, he wrote. Flesher people were operating from instinct and a scornful rejection of the idea that principles of writing and animation even existed. Now that realism was the basis of the rapidly evolving Disney animation, providing a connection for the audience that more rudimentary cartoons could not provide, and permitting them to recognize themselves in Disney characters as they recognized themselves in live-action stars or the characters in literature, Walt Disney was in the business of creating life. Most people think the word animation means movement, Ken Peterson, a Disney animator, once explained, but it doesn't. It comes from animus, which means life, or to live. Making it move is not animation, but just the mechanics of it. We invest them with life, Walt told a reporter of his animated cartoons, oh, animated creations. Disney animations were of life, but they were larger than life, too. What Walt sought was not an imitation of life as it was, which live-action films could do better than animation, but life as one could exaggerate it, a caricature of life, as Walt called it, rooted in realism but expanding upon it. Walt's animated reality would not only be more outsized than real life, it would be simpler, clearer, sharper, and finally better. Our actors must be more interesting and more unusual than you and me, Ham Lusk, one of the studio's top animators in the 1930s, advised in a dictum to the staff. Their thought process must be quicker than ours, and their uninteresting progressions from one situation to another must be skipped. And in this may... And in this may have been the nub for Walt Disney. For all the prospective commercial benefits of animated realism, it had this deeply personal benefit for a man who had spent his young life creating an alternative reality as a compensation for the hurts he felt that he had suffered. Realism further allowed him to simplify and perfect his world and intensify his control over it. Realism allowed him to create a wonderful world of the plausibly impossible. And what was realism without color? Even before he had begun exploring sound, Walt Disney had been captivated by the idea of color animations. He was so eager to improve the visual image of his animations that in January 1930, the studio began using the more sensitive positive film stock rather than negative even though it cost them $1,000 more per cartoon. Shortly thereafter, Walt assigned Bill Cottrell, then in the camera department, to conduct an experiment for an atmospheric silly symphony titled Night. At Walt's instruction, Cottrell put silver nitrate on the film to see what effect he could achieve, then printed the cartoon on blue stock to imbue it with an inky tonality that approximated the color of the night sky. A fire sequence was printed on red stock and an underwater scene on green. I guess he was hoping that something would come up that we could do, that we could do something with, that would create a color picture, Cottrell later said. Walt desperately wanted to press on, though the technology was lagging. 
I am convinced that good color, not too hard on the eyes, would be of value to a cartoon subject, Walt wrote one prospective color laboratory. However, all samples of color prints that I have seen to date would detract rather than add anything to a cartoon. Still, Walt kept searching, and when Technicolor, a company dedicated to color film, announced a three-color process early in 1932 that promised to reproduce tones more faithfully, Walt was said to have declaimed, at last we can show a rainbow on the screen. Whether he could show it, however, was a point of contention with Roy. Walt admitted that color animations were prohibitively expensive, three times as much as black and white in lab costs, and about a fourth more in production costs, with little chance of recovering those expenses in the short run, especially since the United Artists' contract didn't call for color or for any adjustments should Walt decide to deliver his cartoons in color. Roy was adamantly opposed and asked others to dissuade Walt, but Walt was not to be dissuaded, arguing that color cartoons would have a longer life than black and whites. I found out the people who live with figures as a rule, it's post-mortem, it's never ahead, it's always what happened, Walt would say dismissively of Roy's objections. Well, in my particular end, I was always ahead. Walter Lance at Universal had already made a Technicolor sequence for The King of Jazz, starring Paul Whitman. Now Walt felt it was his turn. For its part, Technicolor was eager to assist, since it had had difficulty convincing live-action studios to bear the tremendous expense of color. In 1932, the company lost $235,000. Walt had already begun the next Silly Symphony in black and white, a story about two trees who fall in love, only to find their romance threatened by a jealous, gnarly tree. Now, with Technicolor's cooperation, he decided midway to convert it to color, so he had the ink and paint department wash off the reverse side of the black and white cells, the side with the white and gray shades, leaving only the black outlines on the other side. Then he had the cells repainted in color on the reverse side. Walt was so excited by the outcome that he invited Rob Wagner, a friend, writer, and well-connected Hollywood bon vivant, to view scenes from the film. Wagner, in turn, recommended that the film be shown to Sid Grauman, Los Angeles' leading theater impresario and the chief of Grauman's Chinese theater. Grauman was as floored as Walt and Wagner and booked it that July at the Chinese with MGM's Strange Interlude, a major release that ensured flowers and trees would receive wide attention. Everybody is of the opinion that it will create quite a sensation, George Morris wrote Roy, after a studio screening, correctly as it turned out. Grauman called it a creation of genius that marks a new milestone in cinematic development. Walt later claimed that the showing at Grauman's brought an avalanche of orders and bookings. Flowers and Trees would also win the Academy Award for Animated Short Subject. Now Walt was hooked, just as he had been hooked on sound with Willie. Black and white cartoons suddenly seemed antiquated and stylized, more drawing than life. A black and white print looked as drab alongside flowers and trees as a gray day alongside a rainbow, he later wrote. We could do other things with color. We could do many things with color that no other medium could do. The wheels, however, turned slowly. Nearly a year later, Walt was still lobbying within the company to convert the entire program to color, whether UA would change the contract to compensate or not, whether the studio would have to stand the entire expense or not. 
Walt is very hot on color, Gunther Lessing wrote Roy, who was in New York at the time. He wants it. What Lessing couldn't convey was how badly Walt wanted it. He was so intent that even without the prospect of any additional compensation from UA, he began negotiating with Technicolor for an exclusive right to use their process. He hoped to seal a deal when Technicolor head Herbert Kelmus met with his board of directors and feared that if he didn't close a deal soon, some rival animation studio would. Roy thought Walt was needlessly nervous, since everyone knew the Disneys weren't getting any larger advances for color cartoons than for black and white, but Roy, bowing once again to Walt's wishes, nevertheless met with, met with Calmus to discuss terms. Roy was right that no other studio seemed to be beating down Technicolor's door, and that Technicolor was even more eager than Walt to conclude an agreement, since Disney's cartoons were a way for them to showcase their process. In fact, Technicolor offered to loan the studio money to help offset the additional costs. Complete conversion to color would have required an extra $195,000, and at one point proposed to foot the entire bill for the conversion in exchange for a 50% interest in the studio, which Walt politely declined. Lessing was less polite. Instead, Walt agreed to make 13 Silly Symphony cartoons in color in exchange for the exclusive use of the three-color Technicolor process in animation for two years, enough to give him a significant head start over rivals, but he rejected any financial assistance from the company. Roy was already edgy at the prospect of the new expenses, and even convened a meeting of the staff on the soundstage, admonishing we've got to quit spending money on these films or we are going to go broke. Writing at the same time to his parents, he complained that Walt continually, without let up in the least, always strives for something that has not been done before. That sort of policy, of course, is always costly. As always, Roy was charged with coming up with the money to finance Walt's ambitions. With UA reluctant to pay more for color, Roy, clearly scrambling to appease Walt, approached a New York investment banker named Rosenbaum, to whom he had been introduced by a mutual friend, but the terms for the loan were usurious, and the bank was said to be unscrupulous and Roy broke off negotiations. There was even a press report, which the Disneys vehemently denied, that Roy would be forced to take the company public. What complicated Roy's task was that at the very moment he was trying to secure financing for color, the remainder of the $195,000 loan that UA had advanced the studio under its revised contract was, according to a provision of that contract, coming due if UA decided to call it in. Roy and Walt both wanted to renegotiate both wanted to renegotiate with UA, hoping that they might be granted a two-year extension that would give them the resources to convert to color, and Roy went to New York that May to discuss terms. But UA, depression-minded, Roy said, was not inclined to grant an extension, Excuse me, in part because it doubted that Walt could continue to deliver cartoons of such high quality. They seemed to think there must be a slipping point, Roy wrote Roy. Roy wrote Walt, or that you will go stale or go Hollywood or someplace else, but not to continue making good pictures. Since Roy, having taken up his brother's cause, believed that they had never missed in the past by taking our gamble on ourselves and our product, he suggested that they forget an extension with UA and look elsewhere for funds. He left New York with another small loan from UA, $12,000 per film on those delivered between May 10th and June 27th, when the balloon payment was due, and the determination to find another benefactor to support Walt's new obsession. And there's a note there. 
Hearing rumors of the financial troubles, Pat Powers, incorrigible as ever, wrote Walt, This letter will no doubt surprise you. However, don't have heart failure to offer his assistance. Powers to Walt, April 3, 1933, Powers Cinephone Equipment Corp. Correspondence, 1930-1936, WDA. As it turned out, the benefactor found them. Attilio Giannini, the son of Italian immigrants, was nicknamed Doc because he had earned a medical degree before entering his older brother Amadeus's California-based banking firm, the Bank of America. In Los Angeles, Doc Giannini... G Doc Giannini had become legendary over the years for making loans on character rather than collateral, and he was especially esteemed in the motion picture industry, where he was among the first to provide capital for budding studios when no one else would. The Disneys had already secured small loans from the Bank of America, and while Roy was in New York, George Morris was holding discussions with the bank, seeking financial advice. Hearing that UA was balking at an extension, Giannini told Morris that UA needed Disney more than Disney needed UA, and that Morris should tell those sons of bitches to go to hell. <laughs> Excuse the language, it's just written here. In late May, during one of these sessions at the Bank of America with an officer named Normanly, Dr. Giannini appeared, shook Morris's hand, and abruptly asked him if United Artists would be sore if we pulled away from them, intimating that the bank might be willing to pay off UA's loan. When Morris said that he thought they would actually be relieved to have the loan, $112,000 of which was outstanding, repaid, Normanly and Giannini left for the later left for the latter's office to consult. When Normanly returned, he told Morris that the bank now wanted to assume the entire UA debt. Morris wrote Roy excitedly that this, that this absolutely severs any hold that United Artists may have on us, but contrary to what he had told Giannini, he couldn't see why UA would possibly agree. UA, however, did agree. Not only did the Bank of America assume the loan to be liquidated within six months, it also agreed to loan the studio $12,000 per cartoon on the rest of the contract. A week later, Roy met with Dr. Giannini to negotiate a general loan credit, irrespective of the delivery of films, that would allow the studio for the first time to borrow as it wished. Now the Disneys finally had the resources they needed to make color cartoons or anything else they wanted to make. Under the deal with UA, which was still distributing the studio's films, though no longer financing them, the Mickey cartoons were to remain in black and white for the foreseeable future. Roy saw no benefit in tampering with success, but the Silly Symphony series would, be henceforth, would henceforth be in color. In the end, then, despite Roy's misgivings, Walt Disney had gotten what he wanted, as he usually did. Stay tuned for more next Monday.